Are you ready to change your life, your mind, and change the way you see your world? Well, this is the Minds Gym Podcast with myself, Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover. And here we go. This is Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover. This is the Minds Gym Podcast. Back for another episode. We're here to share some beautiful minds and assist in changing some lives and hopefully change the way you see your world and to create more peace and love on this beautiful planet. I suffered from severe anxiety and depression for several years recently, and I hope by sharing other stories and my story and experiences, it will benefit you. And again, I want to thank you for your support and please subscribe subscribe to the podcast and, and please tell all your friends. Uh, we're really doing our best to get this uh, podcast out to the world. And one thing I want to share is uh, if you could please uh, private message me with questions. And if I answer them in my next podcast, you get a free uh, Minds Gym t-shirt. Sound good? Wonderful. So send in your questions and we will all learn from you, our listener. Uh, I'm meeting a listener this week, actually, for lunch that sent in a question. And I will be be delivering him a uh, free t-shirt in person. So I want to thank you all that are sending in some questions. It's uh, really exciting to get them and and I love answering them. So... Are you ready for an incredible interview today? I've got an absolutely amazing guest, and uh, I'm thrilled to have this uh, young lady on the show. And uh, I welcome the sweet and intuitive Dr. Lynn. Dr. Lynn is a masterful healer, an author, a fifth-degree black belt, and and intuitive with decades as a successful entrepreneur. Dr. Lin opens a direct path for clearing by seeing and accessing information about your blocks and barriers from your energetic field. Often multi-generational, these hindrances are compassionately and skillfully transformed into greater wisdom and released through a revolutionary process of awareness and transformation. And I'm thrilled and honored to have uh, Dr. Lin on the Minds Gym podcast today. What a treat. I'm so lucky you were in town, and a dear friend of mine, Michael Banks, referred you, and uh, you accepted. And uh, the universe uh, definitely uh, took care of me this week. I had a scheduling conflict with another uh, guest that uh, I forgot to text to confirm the time. And when I text him to say we're meeting Tuesday, he texted me back and said, you forgot to confirm uh, on a text message, which I did. And so I talked to Michael Banks, I think, the day before, and he says, you need to see if you can contact this lady. She's absolutely amazing. And sure enough, I contact you. You said, let me see if I can rearrange my schedule and let me see if this feels right. And about an hour or two later, you text me back and said I got an inner yes. 
So the timing of this uh, was absolutely incredible. And uh, that's one thing I like to do is just let the universe kind of just run me and see what shows up. So uh, with that being said, there's uh, no accidents here. There certainly aren't. Yeah. And uh, I was scheduled to go back home, uh, having finished some engagements here. And there's nothing I love more than supporting people and taking their best self and their stories into the world. Yeah, thank you. I honestly can't uh, thank you enough. I'm so excited. And then another, on another note, it's my brother Barry's birthday today. I know the podcast uh, will post on uh, the 17th, but it's his birthday today, so I just want to reach out to my brother and say happy birthday and uh, thank him for teaching me kindness and uh, how to be a giving human being. He's, uh, he's an amazing uh, person, and he taught me a lot. So with that being said, and hopefully you guys are loving the new intro, uh, every time I hear it, it just brings a smile to my face, so... So here we go. Let's uh, rock and roll today with Dr. Lynn. And so how are you today, Dr. Lynn? And are you happy? Of course I'm happy. I have a choice every day, and it's a whole lot nicer to be happy than to complain about how awful life is. Yeah, absolutely. And you're here, uh, luckily, you don't live here in the state of Utah, but uh, you're here doing a documentary, um, thank goodness, so that our stars aligned. Tell me a little bit about uh, the documentary. Well, actually, the one, the one that I was filmed for yesterday has to do with healing from trauma, PTSD. Um, my specialty is emotional and spiritual trauma, which impacts the physical, the mental, the emotional. And what I know is that trauma uh, can be physical, emotional, mental, unconscious, and that with my specialty, it covers all the areas. And I think any person working with trauma not just myself, who's skilled, can meet the person where they're at. I love that. It's beautiful. Um, I know uh, I did a little bit of research on you, um, but tell me just briefly about you and, and your journey. Oh, that would take volumes. I know. Can you do it in two minutes? I think so. Uh, imagine a, a chubby little kid who is incredibly shy, <clears throat> encountering judo as a chaperone when I was 15, falling in love and continuing practicing. I learned how to respect myself, love myself, face obstacles head on or being smart, knowing when to detour. Uh, it taught me compassion for myself and others. And I think that was the beginning of a journey that led me here today. Beautiful. Um, I understand that either um, it seems fire likes you or you like fire. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if I were to put it in <laughs> metaphysical stuff, it would be that my family was cursed with fire. <laughs> um, yes. My, or, or blessed, Or blessed, actually. right? Um, when my retreat center was burning down, I called a Native American grandmother that I knew, and I said, Grandmother, Grandmother Twyla, my, my home is burning down. And her first comment was, Oh, thank you, great mystery, which is their name for God. Uh, there's a great blessing coming from this. And then I called my prayer partner, Sally. I said, Sally, my home's burning down. Very devout, incredible woman. She goes, oh, Father's lifting a curse on your family. <laughs> and as she, she also said, this is a great blessing and a new beginning out of the ashes. So I oh. reframed that fire. And ironically, 
there were two clients at my retreat center when I, I went to New Jersey to deliver a speech. And I was awakened uh, at 4.44 in the morning saying, go home, there's a problem. No way. So I elbowed my husband. I said, David, we have to go back home. And he goes, okay, what's up? I said, I don't know. There's a problem in Dodge. <laughs> so wow. as we drove around the corner, my mom, who had passed away six weeks earlier in a house fire, sort of appeared in my awareness. I said, David, my mom's in the back seat. I know that sounds strange, but, you know, it's, that's how it happened. And then I looked up, and there were these billowing black clouds. And one of the gentlemen staying there had inadvertently set the house on fire. And um, I hadn't been able to get to him. You know, he's an ex-military guy, fighter pilot, Vietnam, um, had done lots of tours of duty, and was very closed up. That fire awoken, awakened that man. And the result of that is he went on to call himself a missionary, not a mercenary. Oh, and beautiful. he's in his 80s now, and I'm still in touch. Matter of fact, wow. he's uh, moved to San Antonio. So his postcard got sent to another mailing address, and it just now made it to me. Mm, oh, wow. So that's that's a little bit about myself and fire. Yeah, and you had a couple other experiences with fire, too, as, mm -hmm. a, as a young child, right? Yeah, I was rescued out of a burning building when I was mm. three. Yeah. You know, so. Mm. And there were other things. Lightning hit my home one time, and there was a fire. And I, I ran inside to get my cats, of all things, and my husband's suits. Go figure. Mm -hmm. And then the rain poured so much that when the fire department got there, the fire was out. Wow. But it was very trippy. I was sitting on the front porch watching the rain with my husband, and all of a sudden, this boom, and like bricks and pieces of wood come. You know, we were underneath the awning, but yeah. it was trippy. Wow. You know, but fire is a great a great metaphor for the things we have to let go of yeah. in order to find our actual right path. There's a lot of detours. Mm -hmm. You've probably noticed that in your journey. Sure. And what seems like a horrible thing and a burden ultimately is a strengthener mm -hmm. for us to find the happiness and joy. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way to find it, isn't it? Got to experience a little bit of hell and fire. Mm -hmm. And this is a negative planet. I don't mean bad negative, mm -hmm. but if you think about where the attention goes to, you know, self-righteousness, anger, resentment, we don't teach our children to be grateful, to meditate, to, to every night before they go to bed. I used to say to my daughter, so honey, what was the best thing today? Oh, mommy, da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. Where was your challenge? Oh, mommy, that kid was really mean. What did you do, honey? She goes, well, I figured that they were having a bad day. Hmm. And so I, you teach well, your children we? young, yeah. and no matter what you teach them, they're going to incorporate it, and then they don't even know what's theirs and what isn't theirs. Yeah. That journey of discovery helps us to delineate the best that our parents could give us from the pains and griefs that they may have had that are then passed on to us unknowingly. Yeah. And that's part of the body of the work that I do. Yeah, I love it. Um, I got to ask you a question. You mentioned, uh, this is so random, but 444. So um, I have a group that meets every other week, and uh, people show up. It's free. And uh, we do the work, which is a worksheet that Byron Katie that we discussed earlier before the podcast. And I kind of walk people through their traumatic experiences and, you know, hopefully... Uh, allow them to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I have a young lady that comes, and she is um, 
able to uh, also, um, she's very intuitive and mm-hmm. gets messages from the other side. And her brother passed away about, I'm going to say three or four or five years ago mm-hmm. um, at 44. And so at group, she mentioned in the beginning, like, my brother's here. He likes hanging around you. He's actually sitting next to you as you're running group, just so you know you've got a little angel mm-hmm. with you. Um, but she says, if you ever see 44, it's him. I literally, and I get chills as I say this, I see 44 at least 10 times a day. Mm-hmm. Like I rarely look at my computer or my phone or I'll pick it up and get a text. But when I do, probably half the time, it's 844, 944, 1044, 544. I'll be doing like a business proposition or something and I'll get a text from the human being. It'll be 644. When you um, text me today from the parking lot and said I'm here, um, 9.44. That's great. Unbelievable. So what is it, when you said it was 4.44, what does that mean for you? Well, it means a whole bunch of things. But let me just, I started out pre-med with an economic scholarship. So for Mm -hmm. me to be talking about things that can't be seen and touched is a far cry from where I began my life. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about the data. So Mm -hmm. first I'll start with the scientific explanation, which is we have something called the reticular activating system. So if you go to buy a car and you save up all your money and you drive out with that red Camaro or whatever it is, I'm dating myself by saying that, (laughs) and before you're down the first block, you see three of them. It's because our brain focuses on things we consider important. So with the 444, that moment was indelibly kind of etched in my life because that's when I was awakened to go home. There's a problem. Everybody has that. We call it our gut hunches, our random knowing. There's a part of us that is so much bigger than our mind. And, and to kind of ramble around this, there was a study done oh, quite a few years ago where they wired people to randomly uh, generated photos. So they, they tracked their, their blood rate, their, their brain waves. Every time a loving picture was coming, and nobody, not even the computer programmers knew because it was random, nothing would happen. Pulse would stay steady, everything would be steady. But before a negative picture or a violent picture or something with blood or car accidents showed up, there would be a spike. And what's, what is it that causes that spike? Because our mind doesn't know that's happening. But our entire body is made up of energy. And energy can neither be created nor destroyed. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, we constellate as human beings who have all of these energy receptors. And so for me, 444 was a reminder that even in my darkest hour, I was awakened. I got to be home. I got to support the firemen. I tried to tell them, don't stop the fire. It's ridiculous. The guys were getting heat exhaustion. And, and it was like it, my house wasn't worth someone's life. And I talked to the captain, and he says, you know, ma'am, we have to put the fire out. See that guy over there? He's the insurance adjuster. So they fought the fire. I was left with three walls and my wood stove, mm-hmm. which was the cause of the fire. My, my client wanting to help me do something while I was gone, decided to clean my wood stove, which was clean. 
but he didn't know it was a 100-plus-year-old farmhouse and that as he heated it, the pipes heated the wood and the char point of old wood is half that. So there was a flash fire through the entire home. And so interestingly enough, this man, although he was military, he came because his daughter had been pregnant and he didn't notice since she was nine months pregnant. He was a, a single dad. And so he was awakened also by something that shook him. The only reason he got out of bed was because in Vietnam he passed out and his his plane was going down. And he liked to say an angel knocked him awake. So he attributes his living and his crawling into the room of somebody next to him um, because that angel woke him up. And he stood up. He was in the bottom bunk. The entire house was filled with smoke. Another five minutes, they would have died. But the irony of the randomness of life, which is not random at all, is his bedroom was upstairs, and my kittens were asleep on the bed. He didn't want to wake them up, so he took himself downstairs to the bedroom that ultimately, with his angel, saved his life. Now, 444 for me became a speech. What are your 444s? Where are the times in your life where you pivoted, where something that could be an awful catastrophe with enough willingness to look with new eyes can become your greatest blessings. Wow. It's beautiful. My uh, my mom and my uh, brother and a couple of buddies, we were all on the 44 train, and they're all going to be shocked when they hear this, and you said 444 in the beginning. Amazing. Right. The, the, the spirit is so generous that it yeah. breathes us. Yeah. You know, I... I even though I'm a minister and a spiritual director and I have a couple of masters and you know all the stuff the world values, yeah. the truth is the only thing I've ever learned that's worthwhile is whatever breathes me. Because yeah. when I'm born, I take that first breath. When it's the end of my life, no matter how much I want a breath, I can't take it. What is it that breathes me? Yeah. And that's what informs my life, and I believe it's love that breathes me. Yeah. Love that gives you the 44 for the lady that comes to your group so she can she can remain connected to her her brother even though we die our souls don't die sure. and soul for me is a unit of loving it's the part of us that's connected to to the thing that created the universe so those things that give us meaning also become anchor points for goodness yeah so that's how i look at my 444 that's beautiful um, I know you started a little nonprofit organization, A Window Between Worlds. I actually didn't start it. No? But I was involved, involved with it, in it for 19 years. And I would still be involved, but they decided to put term limits in. Oh. I was board chair for the last 10. What It was started by a woman by the name of Kathy Salser, mm. who was a very shy school teacher who had lived through domestic violence. And she got a crazy random idea one summer what if I take my art supplies and travel cross-country and stay at domestic violence shelters? She was, you know, she had, didn't have to worry about funds or anything, but she did that one summer, and she compiled an art, uh, a series of art portraits of the women, and that was the beginning of something that we use art to end and heal violence. Yeah. And it's been very effective. It's going on, what, 27 or 28 years at this point, mm -hmm. and we've touched well over 400,000 participants. And one art workshop, one giving someone the dignity of their process 
to express something that's unexpressible in words yeah. can actually turn someone's life around, yeah. especially children. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of art, and I've been considering going to take some art lessons. And I've been fo- reading about you and studying you for the last few days, and you talked about uh, um, how art can help to uh, clear trauma. Absolutely. I mean, when I, when I did my dissertation, it was on one topic, but I actually added art as a component. I, my dissertation was in the area of play as an antidote to victim consciousness. Very traumatized people don't play well. I was one of them. I couldn't play with my daughter. I hadn't yet done the deep work that was necessary, but I used art, and then I started using art with my clients. And then I was introduced and asked to be a board member And then I saw the value with children as young as five and three that were in shelters through Kathy Salser's work. We're now in probably almost every state. And we have sister programs that were started abroad where there's a window of time in shelters, generally two hours a week, where where we are um, involved. The women and the children separately and sometimes collectively sit for two hours now, when you go to a shelter, you give up your freedom. It's almost like being in, in an abusive situation. You're told when to go to bed, when to get up. This two hours, the only thing the kids and the women have to do is sit in the room. They can sleep. They can curl up. They can do whatever they want. And generally, this is called trauma-informed care, where we, we take into account the trauma, which is a very new, incredible celebration. Um, the children invariably will be drawn through a meditative process, through music, through exercise to get the energy out, they'll draw the thing that bothers them. And mm. there's two stories that stick with me. Would you like to hear them? I'd love to hear them. Awesome. That's so why we're here. One involves a three-year-old who is too young because the children started at five. I can't remember his name. I'll just call him RJ. Mm-hmm. So RJ's in the shelter. He really wants to go to art. He really wants to go to art. And finally, they make an exception. And this little three-year-old comes to the art class. Now, what's a three-year-old do? He put his hands in paint, put his hands on the paper. And then when they laid down to take their nap afterwards, the shelter leader laid next to him and said, so what you learned today? And he looked at her and he said, I learned I don't like when my daddy beats me, and I'm mad about it. And that little boy rolled over and took a nap. The next morning, his mom came down and said, what did you do to my son? What do you mean? He slept through the night. Her son had never slept through the night because dad sometimes would come and hit him while he was in the crib. Mm. Now, that just ended potential future generations of parents inflicting on their children because the wounds are passed on. Wow. So that's RJ. Beautiful. Excuse me. Okay. And the, the other one, yeah, I need a sip of water here. Go right ahead. Uh, just so you listeners know, what, what a, an amazing gift to have Dr. Lynn here. <laughs> She's actually a world-renowned human being that's all over the map. So uh, this is really is such a treat. And, and it's my I'm so excited. It's, it's tol- I'm as excited as you are because the thing I love is to watch people's dreams manifest. Yeah. And it's not about knowing the how it's going to manifest. It's more about what's my next step. Yeah. 
How can I be aligned with my dream? And then the intuitive capacity comes in. But let me share how this intuitive capacity came through a little eight-year-old. Love to hear it. And this little guy was really violent in the shelter. He was destroying things, bullying kids, you know, a really problem kid. And so he was required to sit in the art class. And one day he got really interested. So he drew, they were doing something called the Monster in Me Project. Now, would you agree we all have our inner monster? I'd agree 100%. I might have a couple. I got more than a couple. (laughs) And they're installed at birth by our well-meaning parents, society. They come come like it's our operating system. It's easier to be negative than positive. So this young boy Mm -hmm. is in this room, and he's intrigued by the monster in me. So they were asked to draw their inner monster. This young man drew a triangle. Inside it was blue. Had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. And a little squiggly curly hair is coming out of the top of the triangle. And at the end of the workshop, the shelter leader said, so what does is, what is your monster want to tell you? And he looks at her with these serious eyes and goes, my monster has no ears. He doesn't know how mad he is. Oh, wow. And his triangle had no ears. Mm-hmm. From that point forward, that one exercise transformed that little boy. He would meet the most hurt, violent little kids that came in with a chip on their shoulder and said, you need a monster in me workshop. I used to be just like you. Yeah. So, so that's beautiful. the power of art. And I, I use it, it on myself. I mean, there's a million ways. You're, nobody has to be an artist to do art. Right. We are all works of art, breathing, walking works of art. Yes. So if a woman just scribbles... Oh, God bless it. It's getting whatever it is. That when the vets, these hard guys that would never shed a tear because it's unmanly, mm-hmm. put them in an art project where they have the freedom to just, they think, I'm just doing art. Yeah. But the pain pours out and their lives change. I love it. You're, you're motivating me to uh, tap into my artistic uh, capacities, I might say. Um, how about uh, on this podcast, uh, you know, I, I like to talk about a little bit about anxiety and depression. Can you share, um, I assume, do you get anxious? Do you get depressed? And how do you deal with those uh, emotions? And, and what's your go-to to get out of uh, the emotions and, and dealing with the monsters that uh, most of us seem to deal with on a yeah, well, daily basis? You know, I'm I'm loosely called a PTSD survivor. I used to have unbidden flashbacks. They were pretty horrific. Uh, So I grew up in a family with a lot of anxiety, with a lot of dysfunction. So at a very early age, I was depressed. My mom was depressed when she carried me. My mom was bipolar afterwards. I was taken away from her at six months, went to live with, you know, relatives. So I grew up with a lot of anxiety, like, will they get rid of me? You know, um, and actually, quote, in my five-year-old self, they did. At five years old, I was unceremoniously packed up, brought home to live with my, my parents, which set off a cascade of anxiety and trauma. I became nearsighted within a few weeks. Um, I, I retreated to books, and I, I had night dreams and night terrors from the time I could remember. So, yes, anxiety and depression, they go hand in hand. The way I handled my anxiety as a child and my, my, my absolute fear, because while there wasn't a lot of physical violence, there was incredible amounts of emotional violence. And 
the the pain that my parents were in was palpable. And being an energetic loomed being, as all children are, I picked it all up. And so I had to learn to read when there was going to be a fight or when I needed to go under the bed or, or go on the roof as I got older and pull the ladder up and read books. So books were a solace. It sounds funny to say. It sounds antiquated, but Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, mm-hmm. Cherry Aim, they were my role models mm. for what it was to be a happy, well-adjusted child with a father that loves her. So my anxiety began to be alleviated. I mentioned I was 15 when I was had to be a chaperone. I began by having some competence and confidence about my body because coming from that milieu, I had no self-worth. I thought everything was my fault. You know, um, I internalized all my anger. And so I think I was a, a raging volcano. And the entire, in my childhood, they kept looking for the cause of my fatigue. You know, they always kept saying, you have mono, but I never tested for mono. And what, what was going was I was storing these negative energies, these un- inability to express the trauma. I didn't have drawing as an outlet, but I had daydreaming as an outlet. And then when I took up martial arts, I mean, I was this chubby little kid that shouldn't, couldn't chew, chew gum and walk a straight line, pick last for everything, another humiliation, you know. And because of the trauma, I was smart, but I wasn't a straight-A student. I mean, I got A's and B's and C's, but I always had nightmares always, even into my 20s and 30s, about walking the halls in high school and not being prepared. So the anxiety was pervasive. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. But the martial arts became my anesthetic. It was my go-to. I worked out five days a week. I begged, borrowed, stole you know, rides. I washed floors because my parents stopped paying tuition. A whopping $35 in 1965. But I did it, and I was so committed. Like, you have a purpose. My purpose, ironically, was I wanted to grow up and teach martial arts. Now, this was a time when women didn't really get black belts. We were too weak. But by the third month, I was teaching grown men how to fall, the new beginners. And I worked for my tuition. And then I graduated from that to karate, and then I was nationally ranked, and then I first invited team, Tai Chi team, to mainland China, And so my craft has been to take my anxiety and use it as energy, excess energy. So to your listeners, when you have anxiety, sometimes going for a run or vacuuming the floor and saying, oh, what's present here? Can I name it? If you can name something, you begin to have mastery over it. If you just eat every time you get anxious and you don't stop to say, whoa, am I hungry? Mm-hmm. Do I and I've looked in the refrigerator ten times and the same food is still there. Yeah, you know, and I'm guilty of that, you know, especially when I start a new book or something and I have to deliver a presentation. Like I laugh at myself. I don't take anything out, but by the second trip to the refrigerator, oh, honey, you're procrastinating. So I do qigong. So I do a few qigong exercises and I acknowledge it. And when it's acknowledged, and now I call my anxiety a barking dog. Mm-hmm. And it's more than anxiety. It's those negative voices that we all have. They're not our friend. But they'll say things like, you should go do this. Well, who's telling you you should go do this? Is it your mother? Is it your father internalized? You know, so as I got curious, like I'd say, 
okay, this is a story am I telling myself about my anxiety? Because anxiety feeds off the past. The mind feeds off the past. Our habits are past. You can't create a future from your past. You create your future by being present, and the present goes so quickly that it's always your future. Right. Because as I said that, we're in our future already. Yeah. So it's, it becomes, for me, it became something about curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like what makes me throw myself on the ground when fireworks grow off. And I, I was horrified with the sounds of firecrackers when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And now I just went to this huge fireworks celebration, and, and the person I was with was a Vietnam vet. And so he goes, oh, this is a little too real. I said, I know, I feel like it's machine gun fire. He goes, yeah, it is. Now, I have never heard machine gun fire in this place, but some part of me deep down resonated with machine gun fire. Right. And so it makes no sense for a five-year-old to throw herself on the ground, mm-hmm. except that it was protection from something I call the great unconscious. And we all have it, and we don't know because it's unconscious. Anxiety comes up. Sometimes there's a real reason, but most often it's internally generated, and it's there to keep us safe. Yeah. So you said you need to name the anxiety by naming the anxiety i would assume that you mean name what's causing you to have those thoughts well a particular event yes and when i get curious about my anxiety what i did is i would look where did i feel it in my body so my heart would be pounding mm-hmm. or my hands would be sweaty mm-hmm. and i only had one um one or two panic attacks in my life but at the same time, I was, I was really, really hyperventilating and sweating profusely. I got really curious, and I excused myself, and I went to the ladies' room, and I was about eight or nine months pregnant at that point. And I, I got, at that point, I had enough awareness to say, huh, what just triggered this? This is a new feeling. This is over the top. And so my well-meaning husband at the time had just got done telling me, well, you know, when you have the baby, you'll stop wor- working out. And, you know, you can go back to your job, but, but you're not going to work out anymore. Now, that had been my life for more than, what, I was 32 since I was 15 years old. Yeah. So here's somebody that I, I run a school with saying, you're not going to work out anymore. You're not going to train. You're not going to, you are not going to do this, that, and the other thing. And in that moment, it just, I felt my world crashing because there's no way. Yeah. That I was going to stop working out. So he told you uh, a story and you believed it. Right. And it was a story right out of my past. Yeah. Because I had been controlled and contained and controlled and contained myself so that I could survive. And control is the yeah. number one addiction on our planet. Yeah. So I would say the cause of anxiety is believing a story that's not true. Yes. And the way out is to dissect the story. So I I tell my clients, get the data. Is this you or is this someone else's story? Most of the time, it's someone else's story that you've unconsciously taken on as a child. And so when you unravel the story, like Byron Katie, which is such an amazing woman, is it real? Mm -hmm. Is it a story? I use that all the time with myself. Now, ironically, with myself, I had multiple brain injuries, not from martial arts, but let's just say a little domestic violence here and there and a few car accidents and a laptop falling out of a plane overhead without the case while I was meditating, hitting me on the head. And it It was trying to wake you up. I know. It was, actually. (laughs) And and it did very, very much. And I dislocated my shoulder in a car accident 
four days earlier, I was traveling back from, from it might have been Utah, I'm not sure actually, uh, many, many, many years ago. And I said, okay, God, what do you want me not to do? And there was a decision I had made, which clearly was a very large wake-up call. Like, I think that contract you just signed is not in your best interest. So, in, and it hurt. I mean, and I damaged a part of my brain at one point that controlled my ability to be in the present and the future. So for much of my life, unknowingly, I lived in the past. I would be so frustrated with myself. Can't you be here now? And then when I finally worked with the brain guy, he goes, do you have a hard time like being in the present or projecting into the future? And I said, yes. He goes, we have a brain injury in that part of your brain. Hmm. So I actually, there are tools that, that helped me heal that are not mainstream. So I now can write things that I'm winning at and, and write goals. I had written goals for four, over 40 years, but it was very challenging. Hmm. So the story is big. If you dissect your story, like what's in it for me? Yeah. You know, it's our sacred cow, the thing we won't let go of. But yeah. it's here to keep us safe, mm -hmm. simultaneously hold us back, and propel us to our future when looked at from a high enough perspective. Yeah, great. You mentioned um, the now. We got the past, the now, and the future. Um, when you break it all down, does any of it exist? No. No, we're really timeless beings. This is a construct Absolutely. Our ego uses. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard ego called lots of things. I like to say it's edging God out or edging goodness out. Mm -hmm. Ego thinks it knows. It only lives on historical data. Historical data is completely warped and changed as we work, move in through our life. So it's a trap. Yeah. And yet our stories can be the springboard for our brilliance, our greatness, our flow in life. I would say there really isn't a now. Well, there isn't any really time, frankly. Right. And that seems like a very non-concrete thing. But when you experience it, you can stop time. You can stretch time. Why does one person take you know, an entire week to make you know, $500 and the next person makes it in five minutes? Yeah. Same amount of time. But what we do with it and how we learn to manipulate it, it's mm -hmm. malleable. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, because it's so interesting because as soon as you say now, it's gone. And, and while you're saying now, it's gone. Yeah, so, so that's what I always say. So, you know, what are we doing here? Uh, I think that's one of my questions and maybe we'll get to it in a minute. That's a but, really good question. Yeah, so let, let's wait just uh, <laughs> one second. So um, while we're on that, and we're talking about anxiety and depression. So um, since you're uh, such a wonderful uh, intuitive lady, what about free agency and are we doing it or are we being done by a higher source? I love that question. And then remind me to come back for your listeners about how to deal with anxiety okay. and, and uh, depression. Okay. So, you know, people like to think they have free will. And I can't scientifically ver validate that. I just know it from my inner experience. So I say to your listeners, take what fits and leave the rest. Yeah. So the way I look at it, I wrote myself a fairy tale one time that I was in another beautiful place with Mother, Father, God. They were my mother and father in the fairy tale. And I saw this beautiful, bejeweled, blue-green planet called Earth. And I said to my mother and father, I want to go down there. And they said, no way, you don't need to go down there. 
but but I don't understand why people fight and why they're mean and, and why they kill each other. And mother and father said, no, unnecessary experience. So then there was a really wise man that lived on the mountain. And I went and I talked to that wise man. To me, that would be the Christ. And I said, I want to go down there and help. And this wise man says, well, here's what you tell your mother and father if you really want to go help. And then he says, but it's going to be hard. And, and if you really want to go, I will show you keys to help you come home so you don't get lost like all the other people that went there. So I went back to Mother, Father, God. I presented my case and he said, okay, you can do that. I met with my board to decide how I was going to do it, what parents I wanted. This whole elaborate thing, I'm writing this you know, with my left hand, and it's coming from someplace inside of me. They said, you remember the way back through sound, through good people. You discover a school that helped you heal your trauma. You learn how to love everything. And my goal, not the best goal in the world, was I wanted to experience the highs and lows of humanity. So as I'm jumping in the chute, into incarnation as my mom's giving birth Christ yells you're gonna forget all this but I still had an angel with me and for Mm -hmm. the first few years children remember where they come from and as the veil falls as we're socialized as we come into the milieu of our well-meaning families who bring their traumas which are really their lessons we get to learn how to remember that we come from love and if I were to say there's a purpose on this planet, it's to, to overcome our setbacks, to gain awareness about why we do things that we do, why we tell ourselves the stories, to do service. Service is, you know, loving, the highest form of loving on the planet is service. And then also to remember that we are closer to the divine than our breath. And that infinite source of in, infinite power is contained in us. We have enough energy in us to be like an atomic bomb, you know, and the goodness that can be done when someone has a purpose and a vision and overcomes the barking dogs and say, who do you think you are? You're an imposter, especially children of alcoholics. There's a, it's almost like across the board. Oh, I'm, I'm such an imposter. You know, I, I mean, I was doing graduate school when I was a junior in college, and, and I just loved to learn, but I was always an imposter. But what was telling me I was an imposter was not the one that breathed me or that gave me breath. All the barking dogs that I have picked up, yap, yap, yap. We're here to overcome the yap, yap, yap. Yeah. Tell me, briefly explain to uh, myself and the listeners an imposter. I know I talked to a gentleman a month or two ago I'm going to have on the podcast, and he says he has imposter's syndrome. Yeah. Explain that to us. Well, he's probably the child of an alcoholic or Mm -hmm. some kind of drug addict. We grow up having to wear so many masks, we don't really know who we are. Hmm. So in some real sense of the word, we have the divine, the divine will. When we come into the planet, we have choice. Mm-hmm. We can choose to be negative. We can choose to hold our story. We can choose to be positive. The imposter syndrome is along the line of ways that you stay safe. So for example, I, I was a straight-A student. When I ran away from home, I worked full-time. I studied full-time. My junior year, I was accepted into a graduate school program called the Honors Program. I'm still working full-time as a nurse's aide. You know, I worked seven, I worked either the seven to three shift when during the summers, but in the winters, I worked 
the 11 to 7 shift, and then a class that started 8 or 9. So I was a workaholic. I always thought I was somehow phony. There was no logic to it. Just, oh, my God, if they only knew me, I wouldn't be getting A's. If my boss only knew me, I wouldn't have gotten that raise. Don't they know how bad I am? That's the low self-worth. So we make up stories because we can't say our parents are crazy. We can't know in in a particularly distressed household that they're the cause because if we if we knew that we'd be squashed because how are we gonna how are we gonna eat how are we gonna take care of ourselves kids are not dumb they're souls crammed into a little body that still remember that they're big but you can't be big when you're in a household which you get smacked every time you look cross-eyed at somebody right so we pretend so much we don't know who we are yeah wouldn't I? I could almost say, uh, isn't the world of imposters? Yes. Everybody's an imposter, right? Just to a different degree, because we all put on the mask. Happy or sad? I know I wore masks for three or four years. I was miserable, but to the world, when I'd leave my house, I, I did my best to act like I was okay, but I was dying inside. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, when I when I started doing inner child work, this is before Bradshaw. This is, you know, way, 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 way back when I was trying to heal my own self. Um, people would come to do inner child work at my retreat center, and they'd leave connected to this little one that they could then nurture and mature up, and they could re- reaffirm that while life is really bad right now, little guy, it's going to get better. And you do it through yeah. meditation, through prayer, million ways to do it through your art when they would leave I would sob I could not truly access myself there was too much trauma so like an onion I peeled layer after layer of mask I was the competent one I was the one that could handle things if there was a car accident I'd be the first on the scene if there was an earthquake I'd have 40 people holding hands you know while I'm entertaining them while the the whole world is rocking Mm -hmm. and um, and bring laughter and joy in the middle of their trauma because I knew how to help others, yeah. but I didn't know the mask that was almost impenetrable for me. And it took wow. persistence and loving. Yeah. And um, lots of times where I, I thought it was not worth living, but I always thought I'd mess things up and I didn't want to leave anybody with a mess. Yeah. So there was that level of depression. Right. And when people succumb to that, you know, I would say reach out one more time than you fall down. Mm-hmm. Get help. I gotta tell you a funny story about when I was really suicidally depressed. Okay. I had my daughter. My husband, unbeknownst to me, but I really knew was having an affair. So where we used to always take rides together, all of a sudden you go home with the kid, you stay home, I'm gonna take a ride. I'm not dumb. Yeah. So at one point, I think my daughter was maybe not even six months old. I was so depressed, I called what I thought was a suicide hotline. <laughs> right? So it's a Friday afternoon. This woman answers the phone. I said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm really suicidally depressed. I'd like to talk to somebody. And she says, let me put you on hold. This is a true story. (laughs) Obviously, it was not a suicide hotline. (laughs) Yeah, or they would have put you on hold. Then she comes back, and she says, everybody's left for the day. Call back Monday. (laughs) True story. Well, I guess she left you to take care of yourself, didn't she? There was a huge (laughs) aha. Like, oh, 
That was really stupid. Uh, wow. <laughs> and so I called my husband, and he actually did come home all the while continuing to tell me I was crazy, Yeah, which is why I'm no longer married. He was actually crazy. I'm certified by <laughs> saying, actually, when we, when we separated, um, he made me get tested because he said I was an unfit mother. Yeah. Actually, it came back that it was... Whoops, more yeah, the other the way, other way around. around. Yeah. So um, I can say I'm certifiably sane, <laughs> uh, whatever that means. So yes, we take these masks, we use our stories to justify and maintain our pain mm. because the pain we know is better than the unknown we don't. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a way that you can start journaling and scribbling and, and doing your artwork and when, when I used to take walks, I would say, with each step, be still, trust I am. Be still, trust I am. It became my mantra while I took walks in the country. And then I would start going, God bless me. God bless you. And then I met a spiritual director who taught me the nine magic words, which is, God bless you. I love you. Peace. Be still. Now, whether you're religious mm-hmm. or not, how that translates in my world is God bless you is not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt the people that hurt me. I don't have to like them. I don't have to hang out with them. But whatever breathes them, that's the one that I love, the pure part of you before you're wounding. Without the story. Without the story. Pure and unadulterated. God bless you. Then it's like, I love you. Now, I love you doesn't mean I like you. I don't love what you're doing. I don't love what you did to me. I don't love what people are, you know, like what people are doing. But I can love the part that doesn't know what they're doing. This the divine, pure part that has somehow forgotten who they are. So mm-hmm. that's a double-edged sword that won't hurt you if it's turned on you. Yeah. And then I love the peace be still. This came to me as I was contemplating the nature of Christ walking on water and, and Peter. And I thought, oh, he stilled the waters. When I say stop it to the little barking dog in my head, I'm stilling the waters of my ego. Now, Peter was doing great on top of the water until the doubt came in, until the, can I really do this? Splash. But inside of us, we have the authority to say, stop it when we find ourselves in our story. But first, you have to recognize your story. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely got to be able to recognize it to get it to, to slow down or stop, right? So you mentioned to me, you wanted me to ask, how do you deal with the... How can our listeners deal with better deal with anxiety and depression? Well, first is to admit you have it okay. and that you're not broken. I have a very different model than traditional medicine. I don't believe people are broken. I believe they have um, things that have happened to them that they maybe haven't been able to handle because they didn't have the skills. So what people are is works of art in progress. So when a potter takes clay, it's a lump in the beginning. Michelangelo didn't start, you know, as this gorgeous piece of stone. If we like to look and liken ourselves to lumps of clay as we're born, we're molded in our parents' womb. When we come out, we have certain experience that mold us. And then at some point, we may feel constrained. You know, in some ways, we're the genie stuffed in the lamp, and we don't know how to get out. So we, we have to wait for somebody to rub that. Well, sometimes the one that needs to rub Aladdin's lamp is, is Aladdin, the part that's separate from the genie, the, the powerful one. So as we get curious about what makes me, what, where, where do I get anxious? What do I tell myself? That's the hardest part, I believe, building the momentum of a reflective, inner-directed life. 
we can have all the riches, all the money, everything, and go home and be miserable. I know I work with a lot of those people. They're worth multiple, multiple millions and in some cases billions of dollars. And also the woman who's, who's scrubbing toilet bowls to feed her children. There is no, no one person has it better than another. It's a human condition. Mm-hmm. But the way, the way you can work on it is if you need help, get help. But don't go to the person that's your abuser because they'll rub salt in your wound. If you can't find someone safe as a therapist, you can go to groups. You know, each group has their own issue, but you take what fits. If you have a close friend and they're tired of hearing you say the same thing over and over and over again, ask them to tell you, hey, time out, you're in your story. Oh, okay, is this real? Well, do I have the data? Like, say, God bless my Aunt Ethel, she'd wake up at 4 in the morning when I lived there. Unk, they just come back from Las Vegas. Unk, was I bad to pray to win? Uh, F, no, I'll go back to sleep. No, no, seriously, Unk, am I bad because I prayed to win? She goes, but I give the money to, 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 to Viola and I give it to Dottie and I, I don't spend it on myself, Unk. Well, I do a little because we pay for the tickets and we pay for the hotel. Am I bad? Yeah. This was her litany. I mean, wow. how every year when they went to Las Vegas, it was the same story. Now, if Eth was alive now, I'd say, Eth, stop it. Yeah. Stop it. That's a story. You know? Mm-hmm. You're enough. It's okay to win. It's okay to pray to win. We don't receive because we don't ask. Yeah. Goal writing is praying to win. Right. So if you're anxious and depressed, start writing what you want. Yeah. Because the very act of depression is it constricts you. So I like to say either we're expanding or we're contracting. And when we're expanding, we're more able to take risks and adventures. We're completely contracted when we're catatonic. Yeah. When, we're, when we're depressed, we're still, like, we're vibrating low, and it's hard to get out, it's hard to exercise, it's hard to walk. You get out and you walk, even if you just put your shoes on and walk to the front door. Yeah. This is how I did it. Yeah. And, then, and then when you start to get angry, that's a little bit more energy flowing, so my way of getting rid of anger is I kicked a 150-pound bag because yeah. I was really an angry young woman who always looked nice and happy. Yeah. You know, So our face is not a real face until we love ourselves when we look in the mirror. I yeah. love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. So um, a couple questions. Where do our thoughts come from, and can you control your thoughts? Oh, Oh, I don't know the answer to that one, but I'll give it my best shot (laughs) from my own life and from the life of people I've worked with. Our thoughts, I like to say they're installed. What we hear our parents say, what we hear our society say, our culture. So in the Native American tradition, they have something called the medicine wheel. And there's four quadrants in this wonderful, like a clock. So from noon to three is called... um, the age of innocence, where we suck everything up. We do what our mother, you know, we, we behave and, and act inwardly the way our mother models it. And then little boys and little girls learn how to be in the world with what daddy does. So that's all modeled. And our innocence suddenly gets clouded. And then we enter the age of adoption, which is roughly 12 to 24. And by the way, this is different for everybody. This is just a genetic example, generic example. When we go to school, then all of a sudden we take in all of our peers. 
we have to dress the way they dress. If you're different, you get ridiculed, you get bullied if you don't do this and that. There's the in-group, the out-group. And so we form more judgments, <clears throat> and our thinking gets more solidified about who we are and where we come from. If you're lucky, the life's 444, I like to call it a cosmic two-by-four up your head, <laughs> begins your journey inward to understand that you're not your past, you're not your culture, you're not all the things you've been raised to believe, and you start to question everything. And that they call the pathway of peace to wisdom. So when you enter this this kind of a, the other side of the clock from 12, 6 to 12, first you have to learn how to love yourself, which is probably the hardest thing to do in the world. Thoughts, negative thinking, keeps us from recognizing that we are love incarnate. And then so when you start to look at how can I love myself? Well, you know, I've had a toothache for three months. I should probably go to the dentist. Or, you know, I have seven to ten diet sodas every day. Maybe I'll cut it down to five. Baby steps over time create massive neural pathways. And as, as, as you take these baby steps, even if you say, wow, I'm depressed today, you know, I'll go happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy. And I can't stay depressed when I'm going, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, happy, happy, joy, 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 happy, happy, joy, happy, happy, and then I'm smiling. Yeah. Even when I was incredibly depressed, if I sang that song, that was a, a tool for me. Yeah. So when you, when you start this, the loving, then you begin to look at your intuition, which is mostly shut down by culture and society. Men especially, they're not supposed to be sensitive. Both women are said, oh, she's too sensitive. Men, don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. These are the, the barking dogs of our negative thinking that become so much a part of the tapestry, we don't even know that we're one thread in it. So as you continue your journey into self-awareness, you get the loving going a little bit, you got trusting your intuition, but also beginning to teach and serve yourself. Wow, I spend like hours on my phone with just bitches. Maybe I should say, you know, I've only got 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's huge self-love. Yeah. And then you start to get curious, and you start to get goals and achievements. Maybe your goal is, uh, it used to be, I want to lose 100 pounds. Maybe it's like, I'm just going to cut out the sodas and see what happens. Yeah. Next thing you know, you've lost 50 pounds, then your esteem grows. Yeah. But it's your inner action that creates your outer results. So the negative thinking, I do believe it's installed. It's part of our journey back to who we are, independent of the stuff. The ego makes us look outside of ourselves. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I get divorced, I'll be happy. Yeah. When I kill myself, I'll be happy. Yeah. You know, whatever that is, it's always outside of us, and it's someone else is in control. So no, we're not in control of our thoughts, but we are in control of our choices with how we greet our thoughts. If we take those negative voices as truth, you'll never, you'll never be happy. You know, when I lost my house, my house burned down, my mom's house burned down. Four weeks later, my house burned down. My husband died shortly after that in a plane crash. I could go on and on. Every single four weeks for 13 months, I had what would be considered a major Richter scale event. At the end of it, my health was shot. But at the end, all I had left was me, the real me, the one who said, well, I can get up one more time than I can fall. Maybe all this is so I can help others. Yeah. That was the defining point where I got outside of my hurts. I said, maybe I can help someone's life be better because I lived through hell. And it was a physical level hell, 
by earth standards, but it was mostly my inner hell. And my clearing through external things helped me to clear internally. So there's a, a real correlation between inner work, outer happiness, great relationships, abundance beyond your wildest dreams. But the hard work is to look at your thoughts. Are they real? Is this story serving me? We all have story, stories that serve us. My 444 serves me. Your 44 serves you. So you take the things that serve you and lift you in the elevator up into greater knowing. It's like a spiral that goes up versus a downward spiral that takes you down the drain. That's where free choice comes in. Yeah, I okay. love it. Well, thank you. So uh, each week I leave... Uh, a mind exercise for the listeners and after discussing uh, all this beautiful and amazing information with Dr. Lynn I think what I got from it which uh, I researched her for a couple of days and I just started yesterday I'm not a big note taker or goal setter but I wrote down a couple of goals yesterday so my challenge is for you to write down some of your goals even if you're struggling, like uh, Dr. Lynn said, where do you want to be next week? Where do you want to be in six months? Where do you want to be next year? Uh, just putting paper to pen is relieving in itself. So, you know, put or putting pen to paper is relieving in itself. So go ahead and write down some thoughts. Where do you want to be? Throw it out there to the universe and then just sit back and ride the wave and, and see what happens. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Lynn again. It was such a pleasure to hear your mind today and what an honor to have you on the Minds Gym podcast um, just what a treat uh, I experienced today and I can't honestly thank you enough thank you uh, I don't even know if those two words could could uh, cover um, my gratitude for you today so thank you thank you so much and if I can have one more word go right ahead when when you do your goal writing Life is a game. You've heard me say that in this. I've done many iterations of goal writing for the last 40 years. When I write, I'm winning the game, you're going to invoke your inner child. And so it is a game. And if you don't get it right away, don't say, oh, it's not possible. Instead, notice every itty-bitty step you take and know that what's for you will come to you. And the more you do it, the more grooves you put in your brain physiologically, so you are literally, by writing the goals and writing down the gratitudes, you're carving a new neural pathway, which like a, a, a new superhighway you're going to make, and it's going to cut off the old one-lane road that's full of ruts and bumps, and that's the anxiety and the depression. So I leave you there. Have fun with it. God bless you all. Thank you so much. So, hey, listener, I hope you enjoyed this episode uh, of the Minds Gym podcast with Dr. Lynn. Just, a, just an incredible uh, two hours we had today. And here's a final thought. I just want to thank you, um, listeners, for your time and uh, taking some time out of your busy day to listen to this lovely uh, uh, podcast and also my lovely uh, guest and myself. And uh, please subscribe again. And if you have... Uh, any questions, feel free to PM me. And if you are experiencing any negative emotions, um, just understand you're out of your natural state of mind and uh, uh, maybe try some of these uh, exercises that Dr. Lynn discussed today. You know, question those negative thoughts. And as I love to say, we're all twins 
here on this beautiful planet. We're all equal and we're all sharing similar thoughts. And uh, another thought, we're all innocent. You know, we all have our struggles. We've all done what you might call bad things, but, you know, you're just believing your thoughts in that moment. So I'm in you and you're in me, and so now go take care of your lovely self. If you'd like to contact me, um, you can uh, find me on the Instagram at the Minds Gym Podcast or email me at themindsgym at gmail.com. And thanks again. Peace and love to you all, and uh, go exercise and challenge that lovely mind. And for all of you that are out there struggling with anxiety and depression or going through a rough spell, I promise you, if you work hard on your inner self, there is a way out and there's light at the end of the tunnel. I love you. You're beautiful. Thank you. And we'll see you next week.